sentence. Today it's just me, uh, Langdon, in case you can tell. Um, nothing strange going on. Just wanted to try something out. So, obviously, uh, the show having been Gareth's baby, um, Gareth also was the producer of the show and handled most of the back-end stuff, including uh, content design, um, deciding on episodes, uh, scheduling people, all, all, all that kind of stuff. And obviously, since since he's moved on to other things, the chair has fallen to me. And as part of that process, you know, is finding another co-host and all this other back-end stuff. It's kind of boring. But the result of that is that the most viable thing going forward led to functionally a gap between episodes, um, where basically the, the best strategy was recording one every other week instead of every week. And obviously before, we'd been a weekly show, had, you know, additional Patreon episodes and stuff like that. And the goal was to get back to that. And so there were a lot of questions that I had as to, like, how best to fill those gaps if, you know, a proper full episode could really only be recorded once every two weeks. Um, lots of different things that I was looking at and decided... Uh, to stop overthinking it as much because I can sort of fall into these sort of um, toxic mind spirals where I will psych myself out and get overly anxious and all kinds of stuff. That doesn't actually really help. Um, and decided to just take a crack at one of the one of the ideas that I had. And so today's going to be a shorter episode. There is only going to be a single song break at the end because ideally this is going to land between like 30 and 60 minutes. Um, not all that long. Um, 60 minutes obviously would be pretty long but ignoring that uh and what i thought i would do is begin uh basically a lengthier project that i'd sort of hinted at wanting to do over uh, a couple of episodes um and something i'd actually talked about on my own patreon uh for quite a bit and it's working through the novels of cosway we should grow um i figured that this kind of like this kind of format works well for it, of just, just me talking through a book that I'd read and going slow and methodical, um, really giving sort of like a solidity to thoughts because there doesn't necessarily need to be a back and forth and also give some mobility. Like I can just pick something that I have a keen specific interest on and give a little compact episode for it. Obviously, it's the interest and attentions of you guys that, that this is all for. You know, I can just read on my own time if, if that's what I wanted to do. So if this is something that resonates with you, feel free to, you know, pop a comment or something along those lines. You, know, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Patreon, all kinds of stuff. Um, and also, if this isn't the kind of thing that you're interested in, if you think it's kind of boring or not really up your alley, also feel free to tell me because no point making something if you guys don't actually like or care about it. Better for you, better for us. Um, yeah, so I'd, uh, I've mentioned Kazuo Ishiguro a number of times before. I've talked about a couple of his books. I, um, I also brought up how it wasn't too long ago, it was less than a year ago now, that I decided to read all of his work um, chronologically. I actually fucked it up initially. <laughs> I read his second book first and then, then his first book, just as a total fluke. Um, but... That was more driven by, um, I hadn't really, uh, didn't set out to read all of his work chronologically, at least initially. 
Um, Gareth and I had mentioned before that like everyone read Never Let Me Go when that came out. If if you were into books, you just too big of a book not to have to have touched at some point. Um, it's massive, massive book when it came out in 1989. Big Splash got a movie with Anthony Hopkins and sort of pressed itself deep into the literary flesh. Um, but aside from that, uh, and then, you know, obviously The Buried Giant came out and there was a lot of buzz behind that, and I remember that as well. Um, but aside from that, I wasn't super familiar with him. And at the time, my partner was going through various writers who'd won the Nobel Prize and just sort of sampling their work. Um, just in, you know, one of those, like, broaden your palette type things. And Codswell Yushiguro, obviously, has won the Nobel Prize, and so it was just sort of rumbling around in my head a little bit, and we'd go on dates to bookstores, because I'm, I'm that kind of boring fuck. Uh, very little makes me as happy as, as coffee, books, and record shops. Um, so we're just sort of wandering around the aisles, and caught the uh, the cover of uh, a portrait of an artist of the floating world caught my eye. It was this really gorgeous cover. It was Kazuo Ishiguro and mulled it over and eventually, you know, my partner was like, fucking do it. And so I just picked it up, you know, I was like, all right, we're doing it. Um, and it not only blew me away, it blew me so thoroughly away that I was like, you know, fuck it. I've done this with records before and I've done this with other art, other like film directors and novelists and bands that I like much less than this. Let's read all of this stuff, especially since he only has eight books. So, you know, if this winds up resonating with you guys, you can expect about eight installments of this. Um, so then found out that was the second book. So I was like, okay, this is an easy thing to course correct. So go back at the first book and, you know, wound up reading all the way through, including rereading the remains of the day and never let me go in the places where those were. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because that chronological view of his work actually winds up benefiting his work quite a bit. Obviously with certain artists, you can take far less chronological, uh, arrangements of their work and arrive at a really strong comprehension of it because sometimes like someone will seed an idea that they maybe only riff on some number of years and works later, sometimes, they, you know, throw an idea down on the page and it's this minor idea and they only really get around to really digging it up sometime, you know, later down the line. Sometimes moving the chronology around for an artist's work can make more sense. Um, it, all kinds of different arrangements show up, but Ishiguro is curious in the sense that all of his work, you, you could in theory make a suspension of it that is the meta work of his entire body um, in which it living chronologically would develop in a lot of the same ways that, that a novel or short story would develop within, you know, those normal confines. Um, This especially becomes sort of fascinating for a certain type of person because it doesn't always hold true. Um, the, The more that you try to find like, what's the ideal arrangement to best comprehend this person's work. Not work in general, but this specific person's work or this specific group or something like that. 
you get all kinds of different arrangements. So when one that's like literally, no, exactly as they put it out, shows up, it's that's that's fascinating as hell. Um, so for some background on Kazuo Ishiguro, and this will apply generally as well, but it especially is pressing on his first novel, A Pale View of the Hills, um, for obvious reasons. It's, it's the very first novel that he put down, so biographical information is going to have substantially more impact on that kind of a work rather than, you know, other works that he's made that maybe contextualize it better, because none others exist. Uh, pretty obvious. <laughs> um, so, Kazuo Ishiguro is a British man, but he's a British man with a fairly um, curious and fairly specific background in that his parents uh, were both Japanese, um, born and raised, lived there for about half their lives, and in fact, Kazuo Ishiguro was also born in Japan. Um, his family emigrated, though, however, when he was about five years old, so old enough to get some experiences of Japan, but uh, especially as you get older, memories up to about five years old, still, they, they get murky quick. Um, so it, it became very much this ephemeral kind of Japan. Uh, one that he definitely had, you know, clear ties to, because he, he's, was a full-blooded Japanese boy, full-blooded Japanese parents, um, as, as much as those terms can be applicable, those, those terms can get racisty real quick, um, but, <laughs> You know the kind of thing that I'm gesturing at with that. So it was... He's mentioned in later years that Japan as a generalized, like, psychological space. Thinking in terms of psychogeography and culture rather than, you know, obviously the physicality of, of Japan and its history and all that. Um, was something both present and not present. Um, his parents were were Japanese through and through, spoke Japanese in the house, um, and were very much grounded in that uh, in that culture and in that mindset, especially the post, uh, post-World post War II Japanese mindset, because they were born at... I think they were both born before World War II? Yeah, they would have to have been, because he was born in 1954, and they would have had to have been nine in order to not be uh, born uh, before World War II. So... Obviously, they'd lived through pre-World War II, they'd lived through World War II, and the post-war period. Um, a period of, obviously, massive, massive uh, cultural changes in Japan for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and so he had that within his home, but he came over to Britain when he was five. And so all of the rest of his... And it's also worth noting that Japanese emigrants to Britain, while they obviously exist were not especially numerous. Like, when you look at what countries Japanese people were emigrating to, following, or immigrating to, what, I, I forget which one to use there, were immigrating to after World War II, Britain wasn't especially high on the list. It was there, but it wasn't nearly as high as, like, America or things like that. So, in terms of his own cultural context in his day-to-day -day life outside of the home, it was very much post-war Britain. So Britain of, you know, it, he, it would have been 1959 when he moved there. Um, so Britain through the 60s, Britain through the 70s, um, studied in Britain. He, in fact, didn't even return to Japan 
until some 30 years after the move in 1989, basically off of the back of uh, around the same time that... Uh, what was it? Oh, I just said the name of uh, the remains of the day. It was around the same times that the remains of the day became big, and he applied for you know this this cultural program that allows you to visit Japan for free and all this kind of stuff, and was okayed for it. So, especially early on, and you feel this especially present on a pale view of the hills. This dual nature of being Japanese and having this, on one hand, a very direct tie to Japanese culture through his parents and through his relationship with them, and, you know, because of that, through all the things that they could show and expose him to, but then on this other hand, it almost being severed from his day-to-day life, because the minute that he left his door, he was, you know, just like any other British boy going growing up through that time period. Um, and this is something that, I mean, obviously... I'm white and from America, so I can't speak directly to this for a whole bunch of very obvious reasons. But I have uh, friends of uh, immigrant parents. I have mixed race friends, various things like that. This is obviously it differentiates itself um, in different manners. If you're say, if you're a mixed person uh, of various cultures, if you are, uh, if you're a child of immigrant parents, or even the um, if you happen to be transracial, which is a term that specifically applies to people of one ethnicity adopted and raised by people of another ethnicity. So something like a Cambodian uh, uh, adoptee raised by like white parents in America would, would qualify as transracial in that sense because they have this one cultural and ethnic tie that they just frankly can't access at home and not because of the malice of their parents necessarily, but they you know, white people don't have access to the cultural grounding of, say, Cambodia. Um, you can try the best you can, and you can provide the best you can, but you don't have access to it the way that they would if they were raised by Cambodian parents, regardless where in the world that is. But the same general sense of, on paper, it reads like two oppositional elements, the Japanese-ness and the Englishness. But the way that Kazuo Ishiguro is related over the course of his life, and the way that most everyone that I know who goes through similar things is related, is they they don't really live as two separate things, or they do, but they additionally live as a third mixed up thing um, that is distinct from either the pure cultural grounding that you get outside of your home and the pure cultural grounding you get inside of your home, uh, which makes sense because, you know, you're going to be this sort of uh, organic cultural like meeting ground between these two things. And it's not just that both sit inside of your head, it's that like spores from one latch on to and take root in the other, and vice versa. So that, you know, if you were to attempt to sit and try to parse how much of this point of view is, you know, comes from your Japanese parents and how much it it would not nearly be so simple as to do something like that. It would almost be like insulting and condescending to try to present someone psychologically as being that flat that you could so easily take one chunk out, like they're big Tetris blocks. It's like, that's not how psychology works. These things sort of all bleed into one another. Um, this becomes pressing on A Pale View of the Hills, his debut, um, when to, <laughs> even just hearing what the plot is about. Um, 
the main character, at least nominally, is someone named Etsuko, um, who is a Japanese woman who was born and raised in Japan, had a Japanese husband, and even had a child in Japan, but eventually uh, married a British man and then moved to Britain where she had her second child. Um, the comparisons between that character and Kazuo Ishiguro's life are pretty obvious and seem like they had to have been deliberate. Uh, although, obviously, he's... Uh, given that he won a Nobel Prize in Literature and a bunch of other awards, you can assume that he's not going to be so blunt as to just be like, this is a coded version of me, the end. Um, because, obviously, for one thing, he's not a Japanese woman. He didn't move when he was, uh, you know, middle-aged. And uh, his parents didn't move because they married white people. They moved because his father was pursuing a position at, like, an oceanography uh, institute, if I remember correctly, his his father was like, like an ocean bio or marine biologist. So, you know, differences rise up, uh, but the notion of someone trying to parse these two intermingled elements of their identity, and especially as they see it uh, played out in their two children, one of which who was born in Japan and raised there for quite some time before moving to Britain, and the other one who was born in Britain. And the primary conflict of the novel, at least as presented openly uh, in the beginning, is that the eldest child of Etsuko has committed suicide. And more troublingly, the younger child doesn't mourn their older sibling. This obviously is, is profoundly uncomfortable in a certain way, and it's it's distressing and all the things that you would naturally imagine, especially given that the novel is from the point of view of the mother. Um, and they very he very briefly touches on some of the thoughts of the younger sibling of it just being like, we were so alien to one another. We were so very different and like disconnected from, from each other that hearing that my older sister is, has died is almost like hearing their stranger has died. And he's sensitive enough that he doesn't, he doesn't make it as blunt as like, well, she was Japanese and I, I'm British. And that's because uh, that, that, that would be insulting and racist. <laughs> but instead it's, it's implied that there's something about their personhoods. There's something about the way that they both, both approach the world that, was completely incompatible aside from the fact that they were blood related and that's something that i think is a lot more um familiar to people maybe it's not siblings but you know an aunt or a parent or an uncle or something like that where on paper to any to anyone by a western definition of personhood and family you'd be closer than close with this person but in terms of any practicality it's like, well, if it wasn't for this blood relation, I would never spend any time in the world with them. Maybe even not out of malice. I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't give a shit about them. And on paper, that's that's a very strong, uh, that's a very strong sense of conflict. However, Ishiguro curiously doesn't linger on that. Instead, he goes into a very lengthy. Uh, flashback, which at first seems like it's, you know, maybe going to be this little brief thing as the mother is like, well, as Etsuko is like, hey, let me tell you about this thing that happened uh, 
when I was younger and when I still lived in, in Japan uh, before before your older sister was born, and maybe that can make some sense of things. Uh, and then it winds up that that flashback basically takes up the entirety of the book. Um, which makes sense when you see what it is. Uh, the, the lengthy flashback that she winds up telling is of growing up in post-war Japan. So this World War II has happened not terribly long ago. Um, and to the point where they can still look around them and see rubble uh, that of buildings that were destroyed by bombing raids by the Americans. Um, and so grappling very deeply with that post-war psyche. And it's largely about a period in Etsuko's life where she's married but hasn't even had the eldest daughter yet. Uh, and deals a great uh, deals a great deal with her neighbor Sachiko, um, who is roughly the same age as Etsuko, and they have a lot of conflicts with each other. They're not terribly, uh, they don't t like each other all that much. Um, Sachiko isn't terribly popular in, uh, in the town that they live in. And, uh, they, they just don't get along all that much. However, Sachiko has a younger, uh, has a young daughter named Mariko, uh, who is, you know, this, this precocious and very solitary young girl, you know, running away from home to go play, um, has, you know, relationships with people in the town. And, becomes fairly clear at a certain point that Etsuko and Sachiko uh, are maybe the same person. This is sort of a read that's that's taken on, uh, taken on a life of its own over the over the course of several years following the release of the book, uh, largely based on the back that Etsuko's like tale of living in Japan. That, that she tells to her youngest daughter, who's still alive, never even gets up to a point where uh, where her oldest child is born. It it completely eludes it. She's she's pregnant very briefly for one uh, period, very late in telling about this. But aside from that, it seems to have no bearing whatsoever on any of the conflict as presented in the frame narrative in the present day. Meanwhile, Sachiko has a young daughter who lives in Japan and lives in the same town and on paper that's not all that big of a comparison but then Sachiko winds up who has uh obviously had a relationship with a Japanese man in order to give birth to Machiko or Mariko rather uh meets uh meets an American and winds up uh you know hemming and hawing about whether she should you know, pursue anything with him, but decides, you know, oh, he can provide a good life for me, and even better, he can provide a good life for Mariko. So I'm going to pursue this, and uh, even though Mariko explicitly does not like this American man, refers to him as a pig, all kinds of things, and he's not portrayed in exactly a terribly positive light. It feels almost predatory, the relationship that he has with Sachiko, which unfortunately matches a lot of post-World War II relationships by occupied of occupied countries by Western forces, where it suddenly becomes, well, I was serving the military, and I saw a nice-looking Native woman, and I scooped her up, and I brought her back to America. 
Obviously, sometimes those people were very much in love with each other and only met because of these circumstances, but there are also quite a number of times where that was very much not the case. Um, but Sachiko marries this American soldier, goes off to America, uh, despite Mariko, you know, basically losing her mind at the end of this. And then the entire flashback ends. And so this offers some potential insight that maybe this entire story has been a psychologically displaced tale of Etsuko trying to parse her own guilt, um, that perhaps Mariko was the eldest child of Etsuko named Keiko, and perhaps this American was actually a British man, and she's moved the pieces just enough so that she can look at these events and begin to examine her own guilt trying to figure out why her oldest daughter killed herself. And it, through the veil of attempting to tell something of some meaning to her youngest daughter. Because it would also be high... Given, given the frame, it's, it's inexplicable that she would be attempting to tell this very lengthy story if it didn't seem to have any kind of meaning, or potential meaning, to her youngest daughter at least. That, that read, that it is her parsing her own guilt and regret, trying to wonder, like, how much she may have contributed to her eldest daughter's suicidality, to how solitary she was, because she explains that once they moved to Britain, her oldest daughter would spend long times locked up in a room. She'd only come out really to eat, and then she'd immediately go back, um, versus her youngest daughter, who was not necessarily a social butterfly, but, you know, would go out with friends, would you know, hang out outside, you know, all the kinds of things that someone growing up in the West might do. Um, and obviously when a child has died, and especially by something like suicide, it's not uncommon for a parent to try to parse, like, you know, is there anything I could have done, or worse, is there any way that I contributed to this? So there's a lot of weight to sort of hint at this being a displaced grief and regret. This winds up being uh, also a rather popular read, uh, due in part to the other work of Kazuo Ishiguro. So, as I mentioned, there's something about reading his work chronologically that seems to unfurl in a very organic way that isn't always the case for every writer. And for Ishiguro's case, it's largely because his works are intense psychological examinations. Um, it's not that they don't contain examinations of broader culture or the cultures around them. They very much do. But it's largely concerned with how those cultures affect the people inside of them. He doesn't necessarily care a great deal about some sort of abstract cultural image. Like, he doesn't care about some romanticized, fetishized notion of the Japanese man or the Japanese woman, nor does he really care about the same for, like, the British man or the British woman. Uh, these novels being written before, like open and active consideration of non-binary non identities being so much a thing, at, at least in, in the circles that he was in. Uh, they're, they're, one of the things they're concerned with, specifically within the realm of psychology, is one of, of regret and melancholy and longing. <clears throat> 
specifically the angle that they're concerned of there is the the frustrating juxtaposition of how the temporality of memory is is a murky one the past can sometimes come after the present the future can sometimes be buried way in the past and this largely has to do with how like resonance in our brain works we run into an event now and it triggers some intense memory of maybe a specific event from our childhood a specific event from coming of age sometimes it's just a vague notion sometimes it's just an image you know you'll be walking outside and you'll be struck with the image of like a fog drenched uh street lamp that you were walking past when you were like 20 20 or 21 or something drunk out of your mind on at college and you know you had the hots for this one person that you you know all that kind of stuff memory does funny things where it moves around the location of events or sometimes an intense desire for something can manifest almost as like a memory of a future that hasn't happened yet we can do this <coughs> largely because the way that uh the way that memory works in general and the brain and imagination more broadly is they don't have to cohere to reality it lives only inside of our head and once you're in there ca strict causality doesn't have to be a thing you can have these vague dream-like associative uh notions of time and relation where a projection into the future reminds us of something from the past or the in a way that temporally wouldn't really make any sense uh or the the present can somehow give birth to the past in these bizarre ways this also winds up uh sorry brain fart uh we compare this obviously against the real world where time moves absolutely in one direction you know we you we sense with science stuff found that time can move faster or slower but you basically have to be going either insanely fast or insanely slow for that to really ever happen uh for all practical purposes a second is a second everywhere you go forever in your entire life and this can create some some really horrific snarls where especially if there is uh and this is something that we grapple with sometimes as as leftists but also just as people um the inescapability of the past especially if there is something that you feel regret over feel guilt feel shame feel embarrassment that it becomes this question of part of you yearns to erase it to forget it to fix it to replace it all these kinds of things that are frankly never available to us it's one of the frustrating general notions about uh some uh, things like restorative and rehabilitative justice is that on some end we can never undo an action there's nothing that we can do that will ever perfectly make up for something that's been done we can take this to extreme cases obviously of you know cases where someone has died cases where someone has you know lost something intensely valuable but it doesn't always even have to be that it can be something a lot more subtle um it can even be something that on paper doesn't seem negative at all at first or maybe even never seems negative it's the mere fact that the past once it's written is written in stone and we can't do anything about it we can move forward in different directions but we can never go back and we can never modify things and so 
one of the major thrusts of Ishiguro's entire body of work is grappling intensely with that, especially in characters that are middle age or older. This notion, especially the sense of inertia that a life can take on, where you can be thrust onto a path where it feels almost like you can't break out of it, or breaking out of it requires some immense uh, some immense energy in order to like savagely snap the the inertial direction that a life takes on. He isn't to those places yet with a pale view of the hills. A pale view of the hills is very much uh, or a pale view of hills rather. It's very much sort of the proto form of that kind of thought. Uh, it deals with something that's a lot more obvious than a lot of his other novels would later deal with, in the sense that it's a parent grappling with a child who committed suicide and their potential complicity in it. That's about as, you know, direct and obvious as you can get with something like this. Um, but it contains all of those seeds, especially the notion of displacement and evasion, psychological evasion, which is another major, major theme of his work that recurs again and again. Uh, because, again, grappling with guilt and shame and all that kind of stuff would be a lot easier if people psychologically were able to confrontly, er, directly confront it. And easier still if broader society allowed us to point directly at a thing, say, what you did there is wrong, do this again and do this in the future, and we go, okay. Obviously, we don't have that, and for a huge number of reasons. Obviously reacting to these things as we see them doesn't allow us something so simple. Unfortunately, we have, or not even necessarily unfortunately, it's, it's also partly a blessing. It gets complicated real quick. We have this much more complex relationship with things because we aren't able to be that calm and that contained at all times about things like guilt and regret and shame, partly because the things that cause us to feel that also injure other people. Those injuries cause them to feel things, and they're allowed and have an undeniable right to those kinds of feelings. And those feelings wind up making things complex. We get sometimes this, it's overly idealistic in a certain sense, and in another it's, it's painfully, insanely reductive, this desire to have no emotional response to any kind of harm or injury whatsoever so we can very mechanically fix it. And this ignores absolutely completely how harm and injury even work. Um, we wouldn't care, we wouldn't give a shit about it if it didn't cause people to feel things. Like if it was just some mechanical, like, you lop my arm off and I just wish I had that arm. Like, that, that would be the simplest thing to solve in the world. It's precisely because the response to it is the psychological bomb that goes off. And obviously with someone losing an arm is a, is a cartoonish example that I plucked, but... I'm not, I'm not super comfortable just riffing on all the kinds of horrific psychological damage that people can incur. You can fill that in yourself. Um, it's because those have a bomb-like effect in the psyche that sends shrapnel out to all these other places in the mind that you wouldn't even necessarily expect, much the same way that a real bomb doesn't just blow up what you drop on it. It does all this collateral damage. It's because of that that we can't have those kinds of simple responses. And likewise, uh, for, for someone who's a decent enough person to feel guilt or regret, you, you have that same 
kind of process occurring within their psyche about the action they've carried out. Obviously, it's not 100% comparable. The person who inflicts harm is not the same as the person who's harmed. Duh. But, you know, for, for decent folk, at least, or for people who have the capability for decency, is maybe a better way to put it, it's still a similar kind of self-torture, and one that both doesn't necessarily build us towards anything fruitful, but also is an undeniable part of these things. It's just sort of how human brains are wired. And his novels dwell very strongly within that space. A Pale View of the Hills uh, makes it a lot more obvious, and in doing so, it makes it a lot easier to see that that element as it recurs over the course of his work, because he eventually gets a lot more sophisticated at burying it. But it's precisely that that notion of the self-torture, of desiring time, and you can you can take this in like a Proustian direction. We want time to be this aimless arrow that we can bounce around our past, our present, our future, projected futures, real futures, expected futures, uh, current paths, all these kinds of things in order to correct everything and get the best possible response, to fix our errors and also undo harm done to us. We want that, but we are we absolutely do not have that. We're embedded in a world that restricts us near completely from that. And the fact that he would ground his novels in, in that psychological uh, torture chamber, more or less, uh, is a very fruitful space. It obviously can generate quite a lot of drama, especially if you want pure realist drama. We're going to touch on that bit, touch on that point a little bit. But the predominant thrust of A Pale View of Hills is one almost like a decoder ring. By picking something as obvious as a parent who loses their child, and especially loses their child to suicide, and is then thrust deep into the questions of how may I have contributed to this, it both makes sense that she would displace this guilt onto perhaps a completely fictional neighbor, a completely fictional child, a completely fictional American that they marry, because that creates that level of separation that can allow her to see more transparently, you know, what may be led to this. And when you look at the relationship of Sachiko and Mariko, you can see things like a coldness, uh, towards her child, snapping at Mariko for being ungrateful for both the life that she's been given in Japan and the potential life in the future. Um, as well as a little bit uh, that seems curious at first, and it's uh, the relationship that Mariko has with an older woman who lives across the river. Um, Sachiko, Etsuko's neighbor, doesn't want Mariko ever to see this woman, just, just straight up, like, never ever go see her, that's, that's weird, you're being a weirdo, I hate when my fucking kid runs away to go visit this old-ass lady. Now, on paper, that's extremely weird, it's like, that's a huge red flag, like, what the fuck's going on? And you find out that the older woman is, is a widow, her husband was killed in the war, and she still lives in the bomb-damaged home that she shared with her husband prior to the war. You also find out that she never crosses the river to go see Mariko. So it's always Mariko uh, coming in, uh, coming over to visit her. This raises a red flag uh, pretty quickly for anyone in the know, because this sounds pretty quickly like she is a water ghost. Um, 
there is, without getting too deep into it, uh, it's not uncommon uh, in Japan to have images of ghosts as being bounded by water. In fact, that's actually pretty common in the West, too, um, such that one side of this river is the land of the living, one side is the land of the dead, the dead beckon the living. Uh, and likewise, her living in the bombed-out remains of, of her family's home could just as easily be that she also died, and this is some communion with, with the dead. This is never elaborated on a great deal, because Mariko always goes alone, always returns alone. And the fact that it would weird Sachiko out makes much more sense in that veil, because it's like, oh shit, you're, you're vibing with a goddamn ghost. But also the way that this may relate to Etsuko's eldest daughter committing suicide starts to become clear in the notion of her spending that time within the realm of the dead. This being almost like a fantastical fugue-like extension of, like, why might she have killed herself? Maybe she was in communion with the spirits of the dead in some abstract sense. Maybe she was more of the realm of the dead than the realm of the living. The kinds of thoughts that make sense from a grief-stricken mind, obviously they're not purely rational, but anyone who's experienced severe grief will at least understand that kind of fantastical extension of of your real world um your real world circumstances this is uh fascinating in a certain sense because at the time literary fiction as it were um which is what this lives within didn't really like genre elements um it was very unpopular to include those. It was considered somewhat childish. You know, you'd have, you know, your your updikes would be sneering down their nose at, like, fantasy and sci-fi writers and horror and stuff like that. So the fact that he would include what a lot of people read as being a river ghost and what feels pretty obviously when you're reading it, like, this, this bitch is a ghost, um, is a, a, a strange but, but interesting choice. It's one that Ishiguro sort of elaborate, elaborated on later in his life by saying that, you know, when he grew up, like most people who read a lot, he didn't mentally separate, that's the horror, that's the fantasy, that's the brainy literary, he just read. And when you just read like that, they all sort of blend together, and you see sort of the guts of all of them maybe point all in the same direction, and so you can sort of fluidly, you know, pick, oh, I want a little grace note from here, I want, you know, big, big splash from here, you know, like, paint on a palette. Um, this is also elaborated on by a lot of readers, and we've brought this up on the show before. Um, it's a question that has a lot of angles of, like, what the fuck is literary fiction anyway, and what the fuck is genre fiction? Are these terms even goddamn useful? The answer to that last one's basically no, but it's a little bit yes. The short version is None of these things exist until someone goes, I'm literary fiction, and that's different somehow. And the way that those people tend to define literary fiction is it's realist fiction about the psychologies of people, the histories of places, things like that. They aren't uh, pulp. That's the big defining thing. They aren't pulp. So then it raises, well, what, what's pulp? You can't just... And on paper... That means specifically, you know, the holy trinity of genre fiction, scare quotes, is science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The things that had big popular pulp magazines and things like that in the early 20th century. Because um, prior to that, no one really separated any of this stuff. Um, 
Guy de Maupassant, who's sort of like maybe the founder of literary fiction as we know it, kind of did, but even then not not so much. Like, it's, it's not this major thing until around that time. Obviously, there's a couple other things that had pulp magazines. Detective novels did, westerns did, romances did, and those also fall under genre fiction, although typically when you say genre fiction elements, you mean the fantastical trinity of, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. Um... Uh, obviously people who are critical of that separation of literary and genre fiction will bring up like well buildings romans which are coming of age narratives that's a that's a genre form and literary novels do that all the fucking time um novels of manners that or comedies of manners and dramas of manners that's a genre form drama itself that's a genre form like these you it doesn't make sense to go literary fiction isn't genre because that doesn't that misunderstands what the word genre means, which is just if I can clump a bunch of work together and unify it somehow, it's now a genre, and the way that I clumped it is the definition of that genre. You can do that with literally any work. That's a pretty fair criticism. The only problem is that those terms, as shitty as they may be, have started to have cultural weight and have started to shape how some people approach books especially MFA programs, which Ishiguro came out of. Although, good man, he obviously still liked genre stuff. It would come out more in later books, but it is an auspicious start that his very first book includes a pretty obvious water ghost that has this thematic resonance with, uh, with the guts of the novel as well. It's not some throwaway little thing. It's not like, oh, by the way, there was a spaceship at the end. Um, you know, it, it has this intense tie in fact, one of the primary alienations of Sachiko and Mariko is that relationship with that Mariko has with this potential water ghost. Uh, yeah, aside from that, A Pale View of the Hill is... is it's, it's odd, because it both doesn't really live up to the heights of Ishiguro, while still being like a like an incredible fucking book um it's more because he would hit some like absolutely like stratospheric highs later on like the fact that he won the nobel peace prize seemed like a shoe-in basically at a certain point in his career um and the restrictions for a nobel are a little bit more specific than just be good at literature but we'll get to that later um later is in in a later episode not now because it's not relevant now he didn't win it yet um but yeah, when it comes to a start, having a novel this strong, this early in your career, and with so many fruitful thematic seeds, it's really no wonder that basically the rest of his career was spent exploring seeds laid here. Some, uh, you know, I have people who've read his work would obviously probably comment that that's not 100% true, and to that I'd sort of say that, yes, other elements show up, but they largely show up when he iterates on ideas here in a future book and then fills in the gaps in that iteration with some some new thought in order to just sort of, you know, make it a coherent novel. And then iterates on that novel, which naturally includes both stuff from A Pale View of Hills and those new thoughts. So it's still, it's still deeply connected. It's more like the dialectical unfurling of this initial seed. But that primary one of being psychologically rich examinations specifically of 
of regret, um, of placing the temporality of the novel always coming after the climactic event. It's sort of always post-traumatic fiction in that a normal arc that we're presented uh, and told, like, this is a good plot arc, is you establish a threat, you then escalate up to that threat and the climb. There is some horrible thing that happens, and then there is a quicker escalation to some climax or some way to fix it, the end. He absolutely ignores that. That entire process, that entire arc, absolutely exists somewhere in his books, but it exists way in the past. And the book is about someone after that event living with the wreckage of that kind of arc. And in part, there's the metafictional nod of why that arc doesn't really work for satisfying stories because our lives become so much more dramatic in the wake of these things of how do I live with this having happened to me or how do I juxtapose you know having lived in immediate post-war Japan and now living an affluent life in Britain and you know Etsuko having these two completely contradictory images of of herselfhood and even her adulthood and even being her parenthood inside of her mind. Of one is you can look out and see the rubble of a building destroyed by American bombs, and the other is you're in an upscale neighborhood, and you know you have a servant who brings your food to the door from the from the market because you don't even have to go there anymore. Um, of having one child that's alive and one child that's dead. That whole notion of the post-traumatic fictional approach. One where plot doesn't matter. One, uh, it instead privileges the weird shape of memory and the weird shape of how we ruminate on events that have happened to us and our desires for things to be different and the sharp regret and pain that we feel as we can't, we feel like we can almost force this other world onto our own, but we can't that becomes this sharply recurring element across all of his books and all of its present here. All right, so I'm going to finish this off, as I said, uh, with one song. Um, I've decided that I'm going to go with something by Unleash the Archers, who put out a new record on Friday. Um, background on them is actually going to be super short. They're a uh, combination of power metal and melodic uh, death metal. Normally that would make me run to the hills. Um, but, and in fact, their earlier work, I have friends who, loves it, who love it, have raved about it, but just never really connected with me. Like, I, I'd be like, oh, this is better than, you know, I'm not the biggest power metal guy in the world, but there's lots of power metal I can fuck with, and melodic death metal is almost always a no for me. Like, that one's much more rare that I dig something. Um... So on paper, I was like, uh, the fact that the fact that I even kind of enjoy this is is gonna I'm gonna count that as a big one. Um, but they just never really clicked with me super hard. Nothing negative on their end. Just you know, wasn't my vibe. Um, until this one. This one blew my fucking blew my fucking brain. Um, had a bunch of friends, uh, especially people that I currently play D and D with, who were going nuts over it. Um. And, you know, we, we have, you know, differences in opinions, but there's a huge amount of overlap. So I was like, okay, they're going bananas over it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll at least dig it. I put it on. I just, oh, it's so fucking good. Like, the, the big thing for me is that all of their decisions seem so song-focused. Like, 
knowing when to transition from heavier death metal driven parts to big explosive power metal parts uh the way that they approach their vocals the way that they tend not to have solo breaks they tend to have a solo that'll be going on in the background as someone's singing to really focus on like these huge hooks these huge choruses the other thing is that they don't read to me as corny which is the big problem that a lot of both melodic death metal and power metal have for me it's like metal obviously has cornball theatrical shit that's just baked into it but I can't always handle it, <laughs> and those genres really test me a lot. These guys feel closest to, I'm going to say it, they feel closest to Blind Guardian in the way that it just, <coughs> it's enormous, but it hits, like everything lands, and a lot of that feels like it comes from them knowing exactly how to point everything. Like, they, they don't fuck around. There's no, like, uh, I can... I can take or leave aspects of the final track, which has sort of the big power metal, like, whoa, kind of gang vocal thing, which I'm, I just don't like. I just think that's cornball nonsense. But that's it. That's that's literally the only critique I have, is that one decision on one track that also isn't even there for the whole time. It's just a fucking incredible album. Apparently it's a big concept thing. They have a multi-album concept. I don't really care. That's, that's great, and I'm certain... Some of their fans go nuts for that kind of stuff. But for me, that mostly reads as a way for them to make all the songs hang together and a way for them to make their body of work feel cohesive amongst itself. And whatever they did, they they should keep doing it because this is amazing. So I'm going to go with the song Legacy, which was so tight that it made me cry the first time that I heard it, just sitting alone with headphones and just crying in a chair. Um, absolutely incredible song. Uh, so this is Unleashed the Archers with Legacy from their album Abyss. <laughs> You were 
see you.